Church will be together this morning in First Kings chapter. I mean, First Samuel, uh, chapter eight. You can go to First Kings if you want. It will just be you, though. Kids are, who are headed to Gospel Project, now's your time. Thanks to those of you who will help lead them. Um, if you need a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, there's blue Bibles that look like this, and in those Bibles, we're on page 132. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to, to take that with you, and you can use it to read ahead. We are working our way through this book called First Samuel. The large numbers you see are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Today, we'll be looking together at First Samuel chapter 8. A few comments to get us started. Last Sunday, we left the nation of Israel in their very heyday, the very height, the very best of days under Samuel's leadership, and in fact, throughout this whole period known as the Days of the Judges. Finally, after waywardness, Israel turned from their chronic rebellion against God. They tore down their idols. They listened to God. And they did all of this under the good provision of godly leadership. And as God does, in His grace, He forgave them. He rescued His repentant people through Samuel's leadership. And God again and again and again showed mercy. Church, aren't you thankful for mercy? Mercy is the undeserved kindness of God, of which we are so familiar. And as the end of 1 Samuel describes, Israel experienced a long period, a protracted period of positive, wonderful circumstances. As we turn from chapter 7 to chapter 8, it's, it's only a little bit of white space in your Bible, but in fact, it's a long period of many, many years. And in that white space, we'll see that bad habits are terribly hard to break. When we take our eyes off the Lord, when we attempt to control our own circumstances, when crisis comes and we turn from a reliance on God to a renewed reliance on self, then inevitably sinful habits return. This book of Samuel, I think, sort of feels like being inside of a pinball machine. A few of you who are old enough like me to remember what those are will know what I mean. We're getting batted around from good to bad to good to bad, never seeming quite certain at all of which way the circumstances are going to go. Israel in 1 Samuel 8 returns to the habits they should have learned from already. And friend, irrespective of how long we've walked with the Lord, We'll do the same if we're not careful to keep in front of us the importance of walking with God, especially in moments of change and crises. Now, before we get to the specifics, let's look together at the, the introduction, if you will, the setting to this new chapter, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel was a tremendous leader, one of the best in the whole biblical story. Israel thrived under his guidance as he listened to God's word and simply repeated what God said. But his sons, on the other hand, 
They were scoundrels. His sons dispensed whatever they wanted based on how much money they were given. His sons made a mockery of God's good rule in order to fatten their checkbooks. This is a, one of those critical moments for us to just make an observation in the narrative, an observation for the parents in the room. Parents, make no mistake. You and I are the lead disciple-makers of our children. In many ways, what we do as parents will shape who our children become as adults. But our kids will grow up, and they will make their own decisions about God. You cannot... Decide for your kid what they will do as an adult when it comes to the things of the Lord. You do not possess that power. Faithless adults are not necessarily a product of poor, ungodly parenting. And Samuel here is our case study. Parents, if your kids are grown up and they've walked away from the Lord, Never cease praying for them. Don't ever give up. Continue to bring your children before the God of all grace and mercy. And help the rest of us who still have kids at home. But don't wallow in guilt and defeat. Some of the greatest pain people experience is seeing their children who grew up in the church depart from the church. And what we need as a faith family is is not to pass judgment upon them, but rather to befriend and walk with and labor together that that adult child might come to Christ. You may, like Samuel, have done well in your parenting, but your kids just chose otherwise. As far as we know, Samuel did not fail as a parent, but Samuel did make a mistake. It's found right there in the first verse. Samuel's error was that he appointed his sons to be judges. You see, determining judges in Israel had always been God's prerogative. Judgeship was by divine appointment, not man's. Judgeship was something God was to do, not people were to decide for themselves. This is easy to miss in a day in which we vote for all of our own governmental leadership. But that's not the way it worked at this point in the nation of Israel's history. This morning when you took a shower, now I know I'm making a a rather large presumption there, but when you took a shower, did you notice on the bottle of shampoo the instructions? Of course not, but maybe at some point long in the past you read them. They say three essential things. Wash, rinse, repeat. Now, Just as an aside, don't you find it interesting that the company who benefits from us buying shampoo more often tells us how to use it and in what quantity? Now, those directions are fine to follow when you wash your hair, but they don't make good instructions for how to live our lives morally. You see, because very often if we look in our past, What we have are things that we should not, in fact, wash, rinse, and repeat, but rather things we should not repeat, right? If we look back in the history of 
the book of 1 Samuel, the last leader, Eli. Eli was in some ways a godly man. But Eli had two sons, sons who were also scoundrels. And Eli should not have put them into office, and Eli should not have allowed them to stay in office. Here, the very next leader, Samuel, Samuel makes the mistake. Wash, rinse, repeat. But the question left hanging, if you will, at this point is, what about the people? What would they do? Would they make the same mistake their predecessors had, even as their leader makes the same mistake? Well, the next paragraph will answer that question for us. Look with me, if you would, please, at verse 4. Then all the other elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. If you're getting up there in years, aren't you glad people don't just outright talk that way anymore? I'm getting old enough that that hits a little close to home. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have rejected, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me to be king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving after other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Well, there's the answer to our question. It's not only Samuel who makes the same error as his predecessor. It's the people who do that as well. See, instead of crying out to God, instead of turning from sin and asking Samuel to pray for them, instead of being people in complete dependency on God to intervene, they reverted to their prior bad behavior. They chose their own way. They called not for different judges. They called not for God's help. They cast themselves not on the mercy of the one who had given them this wonderfully long period of peace. They called not for different, more godly judges, but for a different institution entirely. They demanded a king. Now, those of you who were here several weeks ago, remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. This is when the, the Philistines came against the people and they suffered an initial kind of shocking defeat. Thousands of Israelites died. And the elders, this was the last time they were mentioned, the elders got together and said, what do we do? And they immediately made the decision to take the ark from the place of worship out to the battlefront thinking we can force God's hand. By our own might, we can yield and wield all that God is to our own ends. And in so doing, they brought tremendous defeat. They didn't consult God. They didn't turn from evil. They didn't repent. They didn't patiently wait for God to act, which is so hard to do, isn't it? They demanded the ark, and disaster ensued. Now, from 1 Samuel chapter 4 to 1 Samuel chapter 8, there is no mention of elders. The very next time they speak, they fail again. They make the exact same mistake. 
wash, rinse, repeat. Here they insist on a king, a king like all the other nations. This is idolatry repackaged. Maybe an analogy would help. Have you ever heard of back rub? No, not this. Not a back rub. Back rub. Anybody heard of this? No, not a single person. Back rub was the original name of the company we now call Google. When Google started, they were named after the search engine that would assess back links in order to determine the relevancy of a particular search to a particular website. But after their first year, they decided that wasn't the best name and changed it to Google. It is the exact same company, exact same search engine. Or how about another? Anybody heard of unadulterated food products? That's a real selling point, isn't it? That's Snapple's original name. Same product, same drink, different name. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, idolatry and self-reliance were packaged as the nation of Israel brought the ark to the battlefront. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, idolatry and self-reliance are simply repackaged as God give us, Samuel give us a king. Different product, same outcome. Brothers and sisters, it is so incredibly easy to slip back in to the same mistakes expressed in slightly different ways. Now, everything we've talked about so far this morning is the, the key undercurrent to understanding this rather confusing chapter in the Bible. And in the coming days, it's going to get even more confusing because 1 Samuel 8 9, 10, 11, 12 are really perplexing because in some ways they seem to denounce kingship and in other ways to make it seem like it might be a good thing. But what's even more confusing is beyond those chapters, we have a different view of kingship. Think back, if you know the story, all the way to Genesis. In Genesis, as God was making his covenant with Abram, he told Abram that from him would come a nation, and from that nation would come kings. It's not in any way expressed negatively, but rather as a promise, as a benefit, as a perk. You can see that in passages like Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. And then in the book of Judges, there is a refrain that works its way through the book. It says, in those days there was no king, and therefore everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people's immorality was directly tied to not having a good, godly leader who would guide and direct them. But here... In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when people say they want a king, both Samuel and God see the elders demand unfavorably. That's kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? So which one is it? Yes, God gives a king and a king is good? Or no, getting a king is bad and should not be sought after. What do we do with that? They seem completely contradictory. Well, let me throw out one solution. In our anti-authority, anti-institutional age, it's easy to miss the point of this chapter entirely. It's tempting 
to try to make sense of these mixed messages by following this train of thought. And it would go something like this. Israel's mistake was wanting a king. Kings are bad. Authority is inherently and inevitably flawed. We are better without leaders. It is safer to be a people in which everyone is for themselves. Watch your own back, determine your own rules, decide for yourself, you do you. We are safest as autonomous individuals. Now, frankly, I think that fits well with the MO of our day, doesn't it? Doesn't that describe the way we tend to think? And the younger you are, the more passionate in those beliefs you tend to be. That's a potential solution to this problem. Why is kingship seen negatively in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Well, it's because kingship is bad. We are better off on our own. But the problem is that does not do harmony to all these other passages. If kingship was inherently flawed, then God would not promise it in Genesis 17. He wouldn't describe it as what was wrong in Judges. And he wouldn't ultimately provide for his people in the most demonstrative way through kings. So there must be some other answer. Now, don't mistake this to be an old, inapplicable issue for us. Because, friends, authority is inescapable. We have teachers. We have coaches. We have bosses. We have landlords. We have pastors. We have parents. We have presidents. Authority is everywhere we turn. The problem wasn't the office of king. It can't be. Because God clearly foretold that Israel would be blessed by having a king. In fact, at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, there's a, this brilliant poetic description of what God's people are like when they live under a good king. Just listen to this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 23. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful picture. When there are leaders who rule not as though they themselves have inherent authority, but when they recognize they have authority derived from another, and they rule to bless, to serve, to enable, to equip, to give away, then people thrive. You see, having a king isn't bad. So if having a king isn't what's wrong, then what's the deal with 1 Samuel chapter 8? The problem isn't kingship. And by the way, I'm laboring this point because so many of us want to buck up against any and every authority that God puts in our lives. And we do so to our own peril. Good, godly authority is one of the Lord's greatest gifts to us. The problem isn't kingship. The problem is why they wanted a king and how they went about getting the king. Rather than turning to God in humility as they faced a new crisis, instead, they relied on their own pragmatism to come up with a better answer. The wrong method to get what may in fact be a good thing 
makes the whole thing wrong. You see, motives matter. Israel's desire here, their yearning, was not for a godly man to lead them. It was not for them to continue to live as a distinct holy people. It was rather their desire to be like the world. Do you see it? It's right there in verse 5. They wanted a king who would rule them like all the nations. That's the neon sign flashing in the text. Their desire wasn't to be more and more conformed as the people of God and live as distinct, humble, separate people. Their desire was to be like everybody else. Now, maybe you're doubting that interpretation of what's happened. The good news is we have other passages that help us see that this is, in fact, what's going on. Way back before, many, many, many years before this, when Moses was still leading the people, before they ever crossed the Jordan River, before they ever had the leadership of Joshua that led them into the nation, the land of Israel, God anticipated these exact circumstances. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me. Here's the phrase, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You must not put a foreigner over you as not your brother. Only he may not acquire many horses for himself. Now God's not anti-horses. Horses at this time were a symbol of strength. Isn't it interesting we still measure cars by horses? If you were an army and you had many horses and many chariots and you went up against another army that had not horses and chariots, guess what would happen? You would simply run over the enemy. So horses were were a picture of dignity, of authority, of strength, of power. So here God says, "You, you must not acquire many horses for himself or Cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Here God says very clearly, you're going to want a king. And you're going to want a king to be like everybody else. And it's fine if you want a king. There's nothing wrong with a king. But understand the king who will be like the other nations will be a king who will use you. He will use you for his own power, for his own pleasure, and for his own greed. Don't get a king like that. We don't have time to read the rest of Deuteronomy 17, but it goes on to describe the kind of king they were to desire. God's point is, make sure that you get a godly, humble, sacrificial king. Friends, make no mistake, and this is such a critically important issue. Authority and leadership are tools given by God for human flourishing. Kings are good gifts. Authority isn't a cuss word. Leadership is right. The tension in 1 Samuel 8 is not that kingship is inherently bad. What what builds the tension in the story isn't so much that they asked for a king. That was to be expected. The shock is that God says, yes. 
the stunning, scaring, haunting moment isn't that Israel raised the issue of kingship. It's that God gave them over to their sinful desire. You see that in verse 9? Now, now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The stunning twist in 1 Samuel 8 is not the people saying, we want a king to be like the nations. This is, in fact, what was to be expected. The shock is that God said yes. It's even more surprising in light of the rest of the passage, a passage in which God will give them one more chance. He says, here's what it will be like to be under a king who will be like all the other nations. Are you sure you want that? Listen to the warning starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said to him, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariot and to be his horsemen. And to run before his chariots, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties. Some will plow his ground and reap his harvest to make him implements of war and equipment of his chariots. In other words, He's going to do that thing with the horses, exactly what Moses said. Don't get a king like that. And your men, he will send off to war. But your women, they won't be safe either. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king who you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Through Samuel, God here warned the Israelites that their idolatrous desire to fit, to be like the nations, to conform, would come with devastating consequences. Did you notice the word that was repeated in the warning again and again and again? Take, 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 take. Friends, that's what abusive authoritarian, ungodly leaders do. They take, take, take. They use people under them. Israel, if you want to be like all the nations who don't know God, then your life will be one in which more and more and more is required. Friends, the pressure to conform and blend, the pressure to become a chameleon is remarkable. Israel faced these temptations and expected if they just conformed to the patterns of the world around them, then they would have lasting stability and happiness. Do you get that? They thought, if we live like everybody else around us, then this way life seems to be going up and down and up and down will finally stop. We'll be more stable. We'll be more happy. And so they they sought to look like everybody else. Individually, we've face this same pressure today, do we not? Whether we're at school, at the gym, at work, in the car, at the theater, 
the pressure we face is not to be people who are set apart by God for God, but rather to be molded into the contours of the world. But it's not just individually that we face this. Churches face it too. Churches are under immense pressure to not encourage people to live holy lives, but rather to just fit in like everyone else. The most prominent current pressure in churches is to conform to the modern idea of sexuality. And the pressure on us is great. We are told today if we're not an LGBTQ affirming church, then we are a hateful bunch of unloving bigots. And the social pressure to conform is suffocating. But friends, by God's grace, and in tremendous kindness, we must not conform. We must swim upstream, however strong the current may get. God says plainly in His Word that sex is for pleasure and procreation in the context of heterosexual, loving, lifelong marriage commitments. And it is only there to be enjoyed. Furthermore, God says that we're made in His image and that we're made as male or female and that our body parts are not incidental to living lives that mirror aspects of the good character of God. That our identity is received from God, not achieved as though we get to pick our own adventure. Church, we today are called to a humble, distinct, grace-filled dedication to what God has said plainly in His Word. Now, every generation faces distinct temptations in their own way to conform to the world around them. So we are no different in this regard. But this is the issue of our day. Irrespective of the cost, we must not conform. And we must not understand this to be a problem merely out there, but a temptation in here. You see, it's not as though we don't have sexual baggage. All of us have either hurt someone else with our sexual sin or been hurt by someone else's. We are universally impacted by this issue. It's not that we don't fail or won't fail. It's not even that some of us won't struggle with same-sex attraction. But it is that we cannot, in the name of love, affirm what God, in fact, denies. Because here's the scary reality of 1 Samuel chapter 8. And repeated both before this in the story and after this in the story many, many, many times over. Sometimes when God's people have a sinful, idolatrous desire and they're cuddling it and petting it, God gives them over to it. And that cute little cuddly thing destroys them. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for. We see this in verse 19 and following. But 
the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that, here it is again, we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his own city. God gave Israel what they wanted, and they reaped the consequences of going their own way. Just a few examples. King Saul, the first king, will spend a lot of time in the coming weeks looking at him throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. King Saul looked like everything you'd want in a king, but he was a disaster. And then there was a few years of glory under a man named King David. After that came King Solomon. King Solomon literally forced fellow Jews into being slaves in order to keep up with his lavish lifestyle. And he had hundreds of wives. And then after he died, his son, who came to the throne, Rehoboam, the people came to Rehoboam and they pleaded with him, please, 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 let up. Rehoboam got counsel from his young advisors. Young men, be careful that your advisors are not all young. Young men, we are prone to arrogance, to foolishness, and to self-reliance. It's part of the ambition of being young. But these advisors said, no, don't, 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 don't listen to the old advisors. Make things harder. So that's what Rehoboam did. And the nation split in two as a result, never again to be reunited. Israel got what they wanted, and it wrecked them. Friends, sin promises freedom. And it may for a few moments. But in the end, it only enslaves Sin takes and takes and takes. And then in an about face, once it's taken all that it can take, then it turns on us and it says, you're guilty, you're filthy. God will never forgive. We must be careful what we ask for because in our idolatry, God may in fact give us exactly what we've asked for. This is the great warning of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, what do we do with a chapter like this? I mean, we don't have a king. We don't live in a monarchy. We are not ancient Israel. And we don't look to other nations often to say we want to be like them. So how does Israel's idolatry for a worldly king impact us on a Monday morning tomorrow? In other words, how does this chapter change your upcoming week? Well, remember that kingship wasn't the problem. And so... When you face authority this week, authority you may not like, authority you may disagree with, whether that be a parent or a teacher, a coach, a boss, a landlord, a pastor, a policeman, the IRS. When you face authority and the sinful response is to at least internally turn your nose up against it. Friend, understand authority isn't the problem. A sinful desire to conform to the world, 
to be your own king or queen, to reject God's good word and authority. That's where Israel went off on course. And that's where we will be tempted to go off course this week too. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians are called to live as distinct, holy, weird people. If the world around us who does not live under God and acknowledge His kingship can make sense of our lives, we are failing to live as God's people. Our behavior ought to seem absolutely absurd to a world who's living under a different king. See, our aim is to be people who are being transformed by God. Our aim is not to be people who are being conformed to the world. Now, the solution to this temptation that we'll face in the coming days is not to try harder or to withdraw from the world. It's also not to choose to live as though we are our own God-given authorities. The solution is to have a better king. A king who does not rule in his own greed, but in grace and truth. A king who doesn't enslave, but rather serves. A king who doesn't take, but who gives. We have a king like that. His name is King Jesus. The book of Isaiah prophesied about this king. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. And listen to how his character is described. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, it will be established to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. That king came. That king gave up not only the throne of heaven, but his very life. That king rose again, and he is ruling and reigning today. And if you don't know this king, friend, today, if you are aware of your own sin, if you are awakened to the way in which you have been living for yourself, and if you believe that Jesus came and died and is now lifted up, then, friend, you are ready to turn from sin and to trust in this king. And in so doing, you will come under the authority of one who doesn't take, 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 take in idolatrous greed, but one who gives. One whose leadership causes you to prosper in every way that is good for you. Now, in closing, you have labored with me long. Thank you. Would you give me 90 more seconds? Don't miss this. This is the the moment, this is the cherry on top. In the middle of Israel's idolatry, in the middle of their demand for a king, in sin, Israel demanded something they ought not to have demanded. And they got what they asked for. But in love, God used this very idolatrous desire to bring about the greatest blessing that would ever come. You see, God transformed the kingship that sprung from Israel's sinful desires to bring about a better king, but a king nonetheless. You see? The thing that Israel desired in their sin, God transformed, namely, to send Jesus himself. The seed of the gospel planted here in 1 Samuel 8 has burst forth 
in Jesus to be the shade under which we all can rest. Whatever idolatrous decisions you've made, Christian, whatever sinful behaviors you are wrapped up in today, brother or sister, God can transform the consequences of that sin into a trophy of his grace. To say that more simply, wherever you have wandered from God's design, you have not run so far that he will not forgive. You have not strayed too many times that if you'll turn back to this king then this king will shower upon you his goodness if God can transform the kingship into the vehicle to send his son Jesus Christ he can transform whatever failures you have done into trophies of his grace Come back to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whatever failures have been in my brother's and sister's life this week, or whatever evil they have come this morning contemplating doing, that they would see from this story the importance of turning from sin and turning back to you. We thank you that you've sent a better king. We pray that we would live this week as your subjects, that we would thrive under all forms of leadership and authority that you place over us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.